Welcome to the Aerospace Advantage podcast. I'm Doug Berkey, in for Slick. Here at the Aerospace Advantage, we speak with leaders in the DoD, industry, and other subject matter experts to explore the intersection of strategy, operational concepts, technology, and policy when it comes to air and space power. So if you like learning about aerospace power, you're in the right place. To our regular listeners, welcome back. And if it's your first time here, thanks so much for joining us. And as a reminder, if you like what you're hearing today, do us a favor and follow our show. Please give us a like and leave a comment so that we can keep charting the trajectories that matter most to you. Well, it's hard to believe, but here we are and 2022 is almost over. Now, as is our standard tradition here on the podcast, we're gonna take a break from our defense policy fair and have some fun with members of our team swapping flying stories. You hear us discussing the future of air and space power most of the time, but the reality is that most of the members of our team began their careers in the Air Force in the cockpit. So this week and next, we're gonna share some of the fun memories with all of you. So sit back, relax, and have some fun as we think about the time these folks were on the flight line. With that, we've got Lieutenant General Dave Deptula. Hey, hi, Doug. Lieutenant General Gus Costello. Hey, Doug. Mark Gunzinger. Happy holidays, everyone. Michael Kingry. Hey, Doug, good to be here. And Sarah Brem. Hello there, Doug. Hey, thanks to all you guys for making time today. Now, I just want to explain that Michael and Sarah are going to be the new voices for you on this podcast, but it's not going to be the last time you hear from them. They're both active duty Air Force officers assigned to Mitchell Institute for this year as part of their senior developmental education through the Air Force's fellows program. And it's a real honor to host them. They bring a fresh operational perspective to what we do. And it's so important to get that. So just everybody, again, thanks so much for being here. And what a great way to wrap up the year. So I want to kick this off with the newest member of our team and obviously a good friend to all of us here at Mitchell, and that's General Gostella. And for everybody's background, he used to fly the F-16 for most of his career, but he also has time in the A-10. So, sir, what do you have for us today? All right, Doug. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. You know, and it's great to be part of the Mitchell team. And, you know, to come in and talk flying stories, I mean, does this get any better than this, right? I mean, beats the heck out of doing op-eds and stuff. But I tell you, <laughs> I, I, you know, yes, I was an F-16 guy, but... Today, I'm going to share a little story about another airplane. And, you know, how do all good fighter pilot stories start? There I was. There I was, rolling down the runway in Bagram, Afghanistan. Normally, when you roll down the runway, you're focused on your engine instruments. But I got a text message, not on my, not on my cell phone, but you can text into the jet. And I got a text message into the jet, and I go, you know what, should I look at that, or should I focus on the engine instruments? And being a fighter pilot, of course, I go, let me look at the text message. And what did it say? It said, troops in contact with some coordinates and a frequency. And I go, oh, crap, this is happening. Why was I nervous? You know, you're like, Gus, how could you possibly be nervous? You had thousands of hours of flying. You've done a lot of close air support. How could you be possibly be nervous about a troop in contact situation? The reason why I was nervous is because I was rolling down the runway in an A-10. And I hadn't flown the thing but 12 times in my life at Davis-Monthan where I got what I called an old man checkout, you know. And they kind of teach you if an old man checkout is like a senior officer course, they teach you how to drop a, take off and land safely, maybe drop a bomb or two, but you're really not a pro at the aircraft. But on ride 13, here I am taxiing, taxiing, rolling down the runway in a hog about to go to a troop in contact situation. So I was, I was, I was nervous. I'm just going to admit it. You know, and... You're nervous for a couple reasons when you're out there flying in a combat situation. You're nervous because you don't 
you don't want to make a mistake, and certainly you don't want to have an errant bomb, one that that that, that doesn't hit its target. You certainly don't want one that creates any collateral damage, or God forbid, you do something that you could have avoided that that re- resulted in friendly friendly deaths or fratricide. I was worried about that, but I could I figured that's not the worst thing. The worst thing would have been as the wing commander that when I got back, they looked at my tapes and I freaking embarrassed myself. That's like the <laughs> that's like the worst possible thing where your ego is crushed because you sucked flying, and so I. Had had a lot of pressure on me that day going down the runway moving and sure enough that when I when I realized how far away it was actually 69 miles away from Bagram Air Force Base due east right on the Pakistan border but Gus at least you had lots and lots of time to think about it being in an A-10 what is that? Probably about right. an hour's worth of flying time. That's right. It was, took about an hour to get there. Actually, the takeoff. I had so much time. To, I could. This, this, by the way, this whole story has occurred while the takeoff is still happening. It's just so slow. But, but the the good news is, I at the I thought it was good news. I had a flight lead. He's going to help me through this. You know what? I, this is going to be a high pressure thing. But he's going to work through this with me. It's going to be great. So. By the time we finally got there, we finally got line of sight where the radio contact we made with the JTAC on the ground. And we could hear right away, there's a lot happening. The guy had a lot, had significant tone of his voice. We heard gunfire in the background and actually heard two voices on the radio, which was confusing to me. But my expert A-10 driver sorted it out right away. He figured it out. Not We don't just have one troop in contact situation. We have two. Sure enough, the Army, the our special forces brother, they went down there with a single group and then... And they split off into two separate groups and both found themselves in trouble getting shot at by the Taliban from the high mountainsides of Afghanistan. So my, my flight lead goes, guess what, Gus? You've got this tick. I'm going to move over 10 miles to the south and I'm going to take the other tick. So there I was alone by myself, very new in the jet with U.S. forces on the ground taking fire. Well, fortunately, the JTAC was kind to me. He asked that I put a bomb down first. I said, hey, can I warm up with a Willie Pete? In other words, can I put a rocket down there first? It won't really do too much damage if I screw this up. And I shot a Willie. He let me shoot a Willie Pete down there. It was a nice big white puff of smoke that everyone could see. And he goes, all right, that's going to be your target area. Let's work from there. And so for the next hour and a half, I slowly progressed through all the different bombs on that jet, dropping both the la- uh, both the uh, laser-guided bombs, three GPS-guided bombs. I shot all the Willie Pete rockets, and then finally I turned to the gun. You know, and as a Viper guy, you know, and it's mainly the Eagle guy, we have a pretty good gun, a 20-millimeter gun, you know. But, you know, the Hog gun is at another level, all right? This thing will shoot out to five miles. It probably wasn't shooting that far. It's probably shooting around three miles. And when you shoot the A-10 gun, you don't just shoot a bullet down there that hits the ground the bullet goes down there and it's a grenade that blows up itself and so and so you can put a lot down there so for the next hour and a half i was doing everything i can to get the bombs and the ordnance down there not do anything stupid not kill myself and of course not go across the pakistan border I don't know how I did it, but I managed to get some stuff down there. It didn't screw up too badly. And then suddenly the mission complete light came on. The mission complete light is a light that comes on in the cockpit of any fighter. It doesn't say mission complete. It says low fuel. And uh, I said, oh, shit, because I had underflown bingo, and uh, which is my minimum fuel. And I realized my mission was indeed complete. So I came off target, handed the thing off to a, a gunship that was inbound, and I limped towards the tanker. And as an A-10 guy... A tanking is not an easy thing because you can't keep up with a tanker, okay? And so the tanker was kind enough to slow down, 
let me rejoin and give me 2,000 pounds of gas, which enabled me to get home. And so from that point, I was able to rejoin with my flight lead. I made it back to Bagram Air Base. And, and when I landed, of course, I was nervous because I had to go in and give my tapes to the, to the weapons officer and the young guys who were going to dissect everything I did right or wrong. You know, but that wasn't, I figured I might overcome that. But the maintenance guys came up to me when I was at the Opsys and goes, hey, hey, do you know what? You've, you got hit while you were out there. I was like, what? He's like, there's a hole in your airplane. I'm like, oh, shit. And sure enough, I walked back out there and there was a hole in the left flap. And uh, it was probably an AK-47 round, kind of a smaller round. And, uh, and I go, oh, man, does that mean it's going to take the airplane out for, the, for like a week? You have to install a new flap? They'll, no, sir, we're going to duct tape it. We'll have it back up for the next go. <laughs> so probably something you can't do with a Raptor, okay? <laughs> but after that, we enjoyed a Cuban cigar and a near beer in the Russian Tower. So anyway, that was the story from Afghanistan about 10-plus years ago. Now, Very sir, cool, Gus. Now, so you were the wing commander, right? So you probably got on the ground and then had to go do a staff meeting or something after that to knock out some PowerPoint slides. Yeah, exactly. I think I canceled the staff meeting and had near beer instead. You know, <laughs> nice. Yeah, I love it. That's awesome. So, General Deptula, let's hear from you. And I think everybody listening knows that General Deptula mainly flew the F-15 in his career. He's proud of saying, rightfully so, from lieutenant through lieutenant general. But he's had the opportunity to fly a number of other types, everything from a B-2 to a C-17 to a U-2. So, sir, over to you. Yeah, well, let me uh, follow up with Gus on a uh, combat sortie, a story, sortie and story that I had the good fortune of flying back in 1998-99 time frame. Could have been late 98, early 99. But at the time, I was a combined joint task force commander for Operation Northern Watch. And I will tell you right up front, that was my most enjoyable tour of my entire command, and I had a lot of good ones. But I was a senior most officer on the base as a yep. brand-new one-star general. So no pressure uh, there. I, I, well, it's okay. Senior most officer on the base. My boss was General Wes Clark. Those of you who know him, are he has a, a pretty negative reputation. But I got to tell you, he was great for me because he left me alone and allowed me to command my operation. But the cool thing was he was 1,500 miles away and he was focused on Kosovo. I was flying every day and the first Northern Watch commander to actually fly combat missions inside Northern Iraq. Because I, when I got the assignment, I told myself that there's no way I'm not going to be leading out in front. And when people told me that, well, previous guys kind of, they, they did the training sorties, but they didn't fly in combat. I go, that's ridiculous. So long story short, I'm out flying one Lead day. from the front. Yeah, good on you. Absolutely. So I'm out there flying our vulnerable, what we call vulnerability period in the uh, airspace, and we flew tended to fly pretty high because we wanted to be above the AAA. We had pretty much taken out the surface-to-air missile systems in northern Iraq. That's a whole nother story, which would take about an hour to describe. So I'll spare you that. And we're flying around out there, and I, I, I. Looking down, and we're just north of the city of Mosul, right where the desert transitions into mountains. Those of you who've flown in northern Iraq will recognize that. And I notice this gigantic explosion below me. Lots of black flak, if you will. And I estimate it was 500,000 feet below me, and I thought, hmm, now that's interesting. So I fly back down to the over toward Iran and I turn around, I come back and fly the exact track and boom, there's another one. So I'm looking down on the ground, trying to see the origin of the fire. And, you know, obviously I see the, the explosion of the AAA, but I don't see the source because that's after the fact. 
But I, I could see that it was over a very distinguishable area. There were orchards that were very unique, and it looked like five fingers of a hand pointing toward Mosul. And they became known as the finger orchards. And so I reached down with my pen, and I start to draw the picture on my lineup card. And then I'm about a halfway through drawing a picture, and I'm going, Dave, why are you doing that? Why don't you just get on the radio and... So I did, and I called AWACS, and I said, hey, give me the operating freak of the E-models. I've got something that I'd like them to see. So what happens here is, make a long story a little bit longer, this becomes, at least in northern Iraq, the first F-15C airborne FAC mission. Because the F-15s, actually, they're carrying B-12s. And so one of the guys said, hey, listen, why don't we bring up the... F-16 CJ guys, because they're carrying cluster munitions, which would be a better munition to use against AAA. And I go, yeah. So long story short, I get the F-16 CJs up on Freak and vector them over to where I am. And I go, okay, guys, watch this. And so I go back and I fly right over the same location. And sure enough, boom, you know, it kind of looked like, you know, a AAA flak explosion from 12 o'clock high. For the youngsters in the audience, that used to be a TV show and back in the 60s, but, you know, World War II-ish. And the CJ guys go, yeah, got it. And so they roll in on it and I go, listen, this is, the, this is coming from the third finger from the right. And if you go down to about the knuckle, that's about where they'd be. So that was my... That's a pretty you know, good fact in there. That was Sounds my, like a target talk on it. Yeah, that was my talk on to the... Uh, I think and, you have a fallback job. <laughs> And the first guy rolls in, and, and you can see the explosion. I go, no, no, you need to get down closer to the knuckle. And I go back by, I fly again, and boom, here comes another. And they see the, because now they're looking at the where the, the AAA appears to be, and they can see the muzzle flashes. The reason they're obscured is not in the desert. These truly are orchards. I don't know what they were, oranges or whatever. So they're covered sort of by the foliage. But then this next guy rolls in and drops a canister, CBU-89, I think. And after that, no more AAA comes up. So, okay, we go back home and, you know, we get to the debrief. Well, it turns out this was, and I forget the unit, but it was a brand new first lieutenant, and he was on his first combat mission ever, and that's the first time he ever dropped live ordnance in combat. So we gave him kudos, and then we found out from the rivet joints later that what we had taken out were 400 millimeter AAA sites that were never to be heard from again. Excellent. And so we celebrated appropriately in the bar that night and they were pretty in, impressed at this, you know, old fart, one star F-15C model dude could accommodate and, and do the, the facking that, that was accomplished. So that's my contribution to today's war stories. Very cool. That is awesome. Did you did the C model community add an, an additional column in the letter of X's that showed <laughs> that you're that you now qualified as a JTAG or uh, as a, as a FAC A? No, I didn't get that. But I got another story <laughs> that I'll I'll save till next time. That's awesome. Okay, yeah. General, that's awesome. I always love hearing that story. 
So, okay, it's time to switch gears and hear some bomber stories. So Gonzo is our resident B-52 expert. He mainly flew the G and the H models. I think he also has some D time. And trust me, I think we all saw his eyes watering up a little bit a few weeks ago when we were at the B-21 rollout and that B-52 flew over during the national anthem. And I get it. It, it is very emotional to see something like that, especially when all the hours he's got in it. So Gonzo, what do you have for us today? How the heck are they B-52? I don't, I want to fly the B-21. I didn't say that, by the way. <laughs> oh, it's the story of one of my sorties back in strategic air command days when we were fighting a different war. It was a cold one, and not just because we were flying out of Minot in North Dakota. Typical training sortie, takeoff, late afternoon, air refuel, high altitude navigate, penetrate, fly uh, low level for a couple hours, simulated bomb runs at low altitude, and Climb out and RTB, beat up the pattern for an hour or two. You know, standard 12, 13 hour training sortie. This particular flight was in early summer, I believe. So we had a great aircraft in B-2H and a great crew, all six of us. Takeoff and landing, takeoff refueling was off normal. And the NAV team had its low-level entry within seconds of timing, which is a really incredible job on their part. Fun started about halfway through our low-level nav leg. Now, weather reports have said there's going to be some showers for the latter part of the training route in Texas, so we were ready for it. We were cruising about 600 feet above the ground VFR, and it was just light enough so I could see the ceiling beginning to drop further down the route. And I asked my nav team if they were picking up severe weather, and he said, nope, well, it looks like rain showers uh, just as forecast. So we're coming up on the range as required. I start to climb out to hit IFR altitude on the route for entering the weather. And we leveled off about 2,500 feet AGL and headed towards the bomb run again. All good. But that's when it got fun. Turbulence started to pick up and, and we begin to hear static on our radio. So I, I check with the radar team. Same answer. No severe weather. Just looks like preset. Press on. And the rain hits and it starts to get pretty bouncy. Nothing unusual for Texas that time of year. But then the radios get very staticky. And the, the Cohen and I see St. Elmo's fire spreading up our front and side windows. A couple of good bumps. I said, Radar, we're not liking this. See anything? He said, I'll never forget it. Pilot, stand by. And that's when the radio started screaming. There was a massive flash followed by a boom. And the whole airplane shook like a wet rag. Never felt anything like that. So the Cohen and I are blind from the flash. My first words to the crew are, nobody move anything. I freeze the controls since probably we're still flying it. It took about a minute for our sight to come back. And when I could see my instruments, I started a gentle climb out and told the code to declare an in-flight emergency and tell center we were aborting the route, suspected lightning strike. Center said to clear any altitude, navigation, our discretion. And again, we're over Texas, so no traffic. Level out about 21,000 feet, check the jet. Everything's good inside. Normal control authority. And so we turn toward Minot. My gunner gets out of his ejection seat, starts to check our exterior through the upper section port. And, and he said, pilot, I see metal flapping on our left wing. Not good words. And then he said, pilot, we got a bunch of metal flapping on our tail. So it's pretty obvious the lightning did a number on us. A lot of activity after that. Call home, big debate about us landing at Edwards to uh, avoid a crosswind landing, but 
winds are light and variable at Minot, so we pressed on home. Coordinated the chase plane for Lookover, which was T-38 from Minot. And the pilot said he could see daylight through our left wing and just outboard of the number one main fuel tank. And someone could drive a VW Beetle through the hole in our tail. Very impressive. Controllability check. Uh, we figured we could safely use our flaps and burn down fuel and pull a long, shallow straight in with a chase plane and land at Minot. Off the runway, shut down, get out of the jet. So we had the pleasure of doing a walk around with the wing staff, and they're all suitably impressed with the damage. Uh, looked like the lightning entered our left wing and exited to the tail, taking the big HF radio in the tail and a whole bunch of metal with it. So that was a flight to remember, and I used that to later in my career to teach new crews about great crew coordination and how never to trust the bus radar. The epilogue is the next day, I was called into the squadron commander's office and evidently the wing king was really pissed off at the crew. And come to find out, someone on the crew had spilled popcorn in the cockpit during the flight and other oh. cleaning up after landing. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> something you don't have to worry about in F-15s and F-16s. <laughs> so, so, okay, guys, did, did they did they fix it with duct tape like they did the hog? What did they do to that? So, Gonzo, what happened to the jet? Is it still in the line? or? Oh, yeah, still on the line. They put a new tail on. They're pretty cheap, pretty sturdy. They bolted it on. Probably took a couple of days. The hole in the wing took a bit longer. I think they patched it up through the depot and they had to fix it. But it's still out there somewhere, flying sorties. So did you write it up as like what Alpha 2 with some minor discrepancies for a, for a lightning strike hole? Is that what you wrote it up as to maintenance? Yeah. Code 2 flyable? Yeah. Too funny, funny, man. Well, I hope story. it was covered under warranty. <laughs> but I didn't pay for it. Yeah, no, I think the warranty had expired. Okay. So Michael, he goes by Manga. You're the helicopter pilot in the group. And you last finished up your most recent tour as a squadron commander of the uh, HH-60s at Aviano. And to be clear, I think all of us here have tremendous amount of respect for what you and your fellow um, air rescue folks do. I mean, to fly into harm's way and pull people out and save their lives. I mean, just incredible. The amount of bravery and skill and dedication to duty. Huge salute to you for that. But bottom line, that kind of flying, you've also got to clock up some stories. So... Which one do you have to share with us today? Well, thanks for that, Doug. I'm going to kind of return here to where Gus was. I'm going to take us back to eastern Afghanistan, and we'll talk about, you know, America's real strategic deterrent, which is the mighty HH-60 Payfock. Sorry, General Deptula. But uh, it was actually August of 2012, so I think you might have been the wing commander there, sir. Yep. So we were out at, out at Bagram, and uh, the HH-60 was doing Kazavak, which is pretty similar to the Army's medevac mission, but some important, uh, important distinctions there. One is that we don't have a Red Cross on our aircraft. You know, we fly with 50 cows. You know, our job is to fight in, get these guys and, uh, and fight out and, and bring them back and save their lives. Where a lot of times medevac has to wait for, you know, an escort to, to bring them out. So it was August of 2012 and we were in Bagram. It was shift change. So we were putting our stuff on the helicopter right around shift change time, 12, 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And we get that call on the radio. And it still gives me goosebumps today, but you hear that attention on the net, scramble, scramble, scramble. So we chucked our stuff in the helicopter, fired it up talked to the ops center. They said they had a nine line. So this is a, a Kazavac nine line to get casualties out as opposed to the CAS nine line. But they had four CAT Alpha patients up in Bamian province, which is pretty far north in Afghanistan. Way it's up a, there. Yeah, way, way up there. Really, 
actually pretty beautiful country. It's where they had the Buddhist statues that the Taliban destroyed when they came, yeah, to, that's right. came to power. But the area was controlled by the New Zealanders, so the Kiwis were up there, typically a pretty quiet AO, but they had gotten into something that day, and they had four cat alphas. So we uh, got the PJs in the back, took off probably within five minutes or so, and we were headed up headed up north. It was about 35 minutes now. Everyone's talking about the A-10 being slow. This is a 120-knot helicopter. You're right there with so, us. You're right yeah. there. Just we're, wait to hear my right 28 story. Right yeah, <laughs> so guys could probably see me in his rearview mirror trucking up there at 120 knots. But we get about halfway up there, and there's a B-1 on station, and he's got his sensors down there. He's already done a couple of strikes. There are troops in contact as well. So they update us, though. Now there's no longer four. You know, there's five and then six casualties now that we're pulling off the, uh, the point of injury there up in Bamian. So things have gotten progressively progressively worse. And this is all pretty mountainous terrain. So mountainous terrain, you know, the threats could be below you. They could be co-altitude with you, and you're flying at 100 feet, or they could be even above you at that point. So we get in contact with the New Zealand, with the, the JTAC there. We're able to land in the valley floor, pick up the seven, I believe, casualties it was at that point, and get them off the objective and headed up toward RC North, Regional Command North, to where the nearest FOB was. So we get up there, those seven guys, were, we landed both aircraft, picked them all up, and then moved to RC North. And the Jays are in the back, the PJs, you know, they're doing the Lord's work back there, helping these guys out. There are uh, multiple gunshot wounds. I believe there was an IED strike as well. So pretty uh, coordinated attack. But we land at the, uh, the FOB, we get our patients out of there, we're getting gas, and then we get another call that says, hey, they just took five more back there at that same point. So we quick turn take gas, and we start heading back toward the point of injury there. The B-1 has since checked off, so now we've got an F-16 that's overhead, and the casualties were in two different places. So some of the casualties are on the valley floor, but the second group of them were on a cliffside, which for a helicopter guy means we're going to have to hoist them out. So pretty technical, pretty complicated thing. It's daytime. It means we're going to be really, really vulnerable just hovering there, right? So the other thing is we're pretty power limited. The Army usually runs their helicopters around 16,000 pounds. Ours are 22,000 with the 50 cal, with the refueling probe, flares, all that stuff. So we're going to have to dump gas as well. So we kind of get ourselves set up. We talk to the Viper guy. We're going to do a show of force. we got some geographic deconfliction. So we come in basically from the IP. We do our show of force, and then we go straight to the LZ to hoist these guys out. So on the right side, i got my FE, Spanky, Spangler. He's in the door running the hoist down. And then we've got our combat rescue officer, He's sitting in the seat with the gun to man the gun while the FE is is out of the seat. And as we're in the hover, we put both of our PJs down. And by 10 o'clock, I start seeing just muzzle flashes. So I was like, okay, here, here we go. So I call, you know, go around, small arms, 10 o'clock, 400 meters burst. And my gunner doesn't see it. So then I just say, 10 o'clock, shoot. And he just like, rips loose with about 100 rounds of 50 cal. We start Sweet. going. We start going around. Yep. And there's two things an, an FE, a flight engineer, wants to do on a deployment is get a hoist and shoot the gun. But our FE is in the door right now, so he's trying to get the hoist back in. The PJs are on the ground, but our crow, who's in the in the gun right there, he just now he rips with about 200 rounds of 50 cal. <laughs> he's loving life. Oh, he loved it. And the rest of the deployment, he would not let him live it down. He was like, "Hey, you know, someone who's employed 50 cal in combat, I can tell you." So he just gave him crap the rest of the deployment. But we enter weapons pattern. I call up my wingman to come rejoin us. You know, we probably shot about 600 rounds of 50 cal. And it's funny, but it's almost just like in training. You know, we set a weapons pattern, you know, rejoin racetrack, right side fire. And I could remember hearing my wingman, as we called out, I hear Pedro 8-4 in, and he starts shooting 50 cal at that same point of origin. So we did about six, 800 rounds of uh, 50 cal there. It has about the same terminal or terminal effects as a 20 millimeter ball round. No, no big deal. But uh, we finally get the threat suppressed, but now we are we have almost no gas left. Oh. And these are, we've got two PJs on the, on the cliff side with the two cat alpha patients. 
And if we choose to go get gas, these are cat alpha patients. So the, the, the golden hour applies here. They need to be to medical care within an hour. They're probably going to expire. We had a crow there who used to say there's two things that save lives in this theater, and that's bright lights and cold steel. So getting them to a surgeon. So we mm-hmm. kind of we game plan it real fast. That's like, a hey, good we're way gonna, to put it. Yeah. We're going to, you know, we're going to push it. We're going to try to, we're going to push the gas. We're going to try to get these guys. So we come back in, a spanky Maya feed does a great hoist. We take them all off the uh, side of this mountain and then we start pressing for the uh, FOB, but we are at bingo now. We are probably not going to make it to the FOB. So luckily our DO, Tuck Sweeney, he's a B1 guy who would cross over to 60s. At the beginning of the sortie, he'd, he'd talk to the HC-130 guys down in Kandahar, got them released so they could uh, come up there and support us. And he got himself in a little bit of trouble, but he fought for us. And, you know, thank God he got him released because they came up there to give us gas. But we had – usually we're going to climb out of the small arms environment to get gas, but we had no fuel to do that. So we stayed low. The HC-130 guys came down about 500 to 1,000 feet to give us gas, which those guys are at 120 knots. They got the hoses out. They got the flaps all the way down. And wow. daytime, they're, they're really hanging themselves out there. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, God bless those guys. But they're going to give us gas, and it's hot. The drogue is – bouncing all over the place and I'm like I don't I don't know if I'm gonna be able to plug on this thing and finally I get a the drogue stays still I get a second I'm like I'm going for it I increase collective plug and I get about 230 or 200 300 pounds of gas and then I disconnect but my wingman on the other side is not having a good day so he misses once he misses twice he misses a third time He's down to about 200 pounds of gas which is about that's, that's, that's about that's eight or fumes. ten minutes about eight or ten minutes in the hawk so I'll never forget, I looked to my co-pilot, Matt Farr, and I was like, hey, you got to find a place on the map here. We're going to have to set these guys set down. Set them down. Yeah. We're going to have to set them down. We start talking to the, to the PJs in the back that, hey, we're going to set down. We'll keep the generator on. Guns will still have power to them. We'll transit all the patients over, and we'll start ferrying people back and forth. And uh, kind of as, as we were having those conversations, our wingman calls back and says, let's get one more shot at this. And we're all – just staring at him. And I think through sheer will, through two, <laughs> through two agencies. No pressure. Yeah, no pressure. The co-pilot comes in and gets that final plug, and he takes on about 300 pounds, and we get Sweet. back to the fob. You could just wow. feel Woo-hoo. you could just feel the anxiety release throughout the entire crew. So we made it back to the fob. We are able to get our guys on the ground there, got them to medical care. We took off about 10 New Zealanders off the objective that day. Uh, unfortunately, a couple of them didn't make it, <clears throat> so we lost a couple of them. Stayed there at NRC North to cover the rest of their their period. And then once the sun went down, we repatriated their remains back to Bagram. And if you actually look on, on YouTube now, there's a video of their unit in New Zealand getting their remains back and they all do their the haka, the Maori dance when they when they get them back. It's pretty pretty impressive. But it was just it's it sounds so cliche, but it was just such a team effort from the DO launching the HC to you know our crow who's doing shooting a fifty cal, which he's not supposed to do, <laughs> to the FE running a hoist, like it was really is a team effort the hc guys you know coming down to the small arms was to help us out but that was my that was my there i was story very slow 120 knots but there i was (laughs) wow very good that's a heck of a story it reminds me of a short war story it'll be quick in the f-15 where you want to be on a tanker refueling is down and to the right so i had an opportunity to go up and fly an hh-60 and during the flight the IP said, hey, want to try some refueling? I went, yeah, sure. It would have been nice if you'd give me some tips before we took off, but <laughs> off of an HC-130. Mm-hmm. And so in an HH-60, where you want to be is up and to the left. So you can imagine the challenge it was for someone who has 30 years of being down and to the right to try to be up and to the left. But 
trying to unlearn all that muscle so, memory. So uh, it is it is not an easy thing to do with probe and drogue. Oh, that's a hell of a story, and, Mongo, by the way. I mean, seriously, and uh, if it wasn't for you guys, I mean, for anybody who's out in Afghanistan, who was out in Afghanistan or any of these theaters, you know, what you guys provide, what you guys provided is that is that that assurance to take those risks out there and to do that for our partners like you did. That's just amazing. Yep. Good on you, man. Appreciate that. Thank you. Okay. Last but not least, we've got Sarah Brem. Now she's with Air Force Special Operations Command and flies an incredibly cool airplane, the U-28. It's not well known given the low profile aspects of what it executes, but the missions are really important and sees crews operating all around the world. The aircraft carries a variety of sensors and it's been a key part of facilitating missions for the last two decades. So Sarah, what do you got for us? Hey, thanks, Doug, for the nice introduction. Mongo and I sure appreciate the opportunity to serve on this podcast among such an elite crowd with a wealth of experiences. So speaking of slow aircraft, the PC-12 Pilatus max speed is 236 knots indicated. We typically- well, I, Hey, that's, that, yeah, that'll yeah. best an A-10, come on. Hog, if we, hog guys are, are good with that. But if we could ever get up that fast, that we'd be probably descending at like 6,000 feet a minute or something. But <laughs> typically we'd be on orbit, lots of left-hand turns at about 110 knots. So just slightly slower than the, the I know, HH-60. I know that speed, yeah. yeah but but yeah, a lot of, lot of combat deployments in the garden spots of the world, particularly East Africa. So I'm going to tell you a story from, from my time in East Africa. So just to set the stage a little bit, we're, we're at a pretty remote airfield where it's pretty much just an airfield, my team and some, some other soft troops and security forces just to, to kind of do the best they can to control the, the airfield. Every single sortie you fly in the U-28, you are thinking about gas. So it's interesting that General Guastella mentioned the, the mission complete lights because th that's definitely a thing. And then Mongo chose to share a story about, you know, the sweating, not being able to, to, to get gas from the tanker. Unfortunately, you can't refuel in the, in the U-28, so you got the gas you got, and it's not much. I mean, shoot, we, we carry probably as much on our entire 5.0 sortie as a Gonzo there burns <laughs> on one, en one of his eight engines taxiing from the, from the chocks to the end of the runway. But, oh. but, but, you know, every single, every single sortie, the aircraft commander is focused on, on gas and am I going to have enough to get back? The particular, this particular mission in East Africa, we're integrating with some, some ground, uh, a ground party. We had some U.S. forces training some, some other people and they were, they were working on a mission and it ended up, they ended up taking some fire unexpectedly. And so of course I'm like, oh man, do I have enough gas to stay while they resolve this? And, and my backfill is, is still a ways out. So you, you eke out every, every drop of gas you can, but it, it comes a point where, nope, we got to go or we're, we're bingo. Fortunately, the, you know, the scheme when we were on the ground was under control, but then you had to truck back to the, to the fob we were located. And there's not a lot at. of alternative airfields in yeah, East Africa, right? That's right, sir. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, and none of the fields are lit. So you're, you're land with min fuel, basically emergency fuel to a blacked out runway oh. that's semi-prep, short field. Maybe you have a box in one, maybe you don't, but that is something really cool that special operations gets to do. You know, we've probably everybody on this podcast has flown on MVGs, but we, we don't have to lift them, you know, when we're inside the final approach fix, we actually get to land the aircraft on, on NOGS. And I remember coming back with my co-pilot and, you know, I'm like, oh, do I let my, do I let this co-pilot on his first deployment take this landing? Cause we have one shot. Like we don't yeah. even have enough gas if we have to go around, but we, we made it back to the airfield 
couldn't see the runway, couldn't see anything, zero loom night. <laughs> so then, you know, the, the sweating about not having enough gas is further exacerbated by not being able to see the yes. runway. We finally see the strobe and we're, we set up and, and we're able to make it in. But I'll tell you, you're, you're, you're sweating, <laughs> not knowing, and, and you don't have anywhere else to go. And imagine if the runway got shut down for some reason, you know, there was, Anything. there were animals crossing the field. You, you don't even have enough gas to go anywhere else. So you're constantly thinking about wh- what dirt road you can, you can land on. But yeah, that, that, that was, awesome. that was the way most of our U-28 missions were. But I think the, the thing that really makes, makes that community are the relationships. You know, I've spent, I've spent Christmases in yep. Iraq, Djibouti, Afghanistan, as I'm sure all of you can relate. And it's all about being with the people that are able to get the mission done. So we wouldn't have all these cool war stories if it, if it weren't for those people. So, awesome. Yeah. Well done, increase. sir. Yes, sir. And I tell you what, the fact that you stayed out there to full mission complete and then some made a huge difference for the folks on the ground, which is which says everything to your, your dedication out there as a crew. Yes, sir. Well, guys, I can't thank you enough. And this cuts to the heart of why we want to do these. It's fun to look back at old times, but really the the experiences and all, there are so many lessons in here and it's been great to highlight this. So I wish you the best for the holidays. Hope you're able to spend time with your families and get some well-deserved time off. And uh, General Deptula explained to me, we get the hours between 6 a.m. and noon off on Christmas Day. So I'm really looking forward to that. <laughs> He's gotten really, he's a real Santa now. <laughs> oh, then, yeah. Wait, so much, wait, you, you wanted more? <laughs> all right, Doug, it was a, it's a good round. Merry Christmas to all. Really appreciate the opportunity to do this. Merry Christmas. Have a great holiday. Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas, everybody. Thanks. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Thanks. With that, I'd like to extend a big thank you to our guests for joining in today's discussion. I'd also like to extend a big thank you to our listeners for your continued support and for tuning into today's shows. And if you like what you've heard today, don't forget to hit that like button and follow or subscribe to the Aerospace Advantage. You can also leave a comment to let us know what you think about our show or areas that you think we should further explore. As always, you can join in the conversation by following the Mitchell Institute on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn. And you can always find us at mitchellaerospacepower.org. So with that, happy holidays and best to you and your family.